verses 20 to 31. Then Jesus looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from... And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not withhold even your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And if anyone takes away what is yours, do not ask for it back again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. May the words that I speak and the meditation of our hearts strengthen us so that we might serve on earth as in heaven. In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. Well, today, our observance of All Saints Day collides with this passage from Luke's Gospel, where Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God through four blessings, four woes, and one golden rule. It's a really interesting collision. As we remember and give thanks for the saints of the church and the saints of our own lives who have encouraged, inspired, and shaped us, we might think they are the ones who are no longer poor, hungry, weeping, or excluded. Kind of in that sense that heaven is pie in the sky when you die. Yet this passage breaks open the reality of something that we can easily forget or overlook that heaven is more than a future aspiration or our ultimate destination. The heaven for which we pray when we say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. When we pray this way as we do regularly, it brings close to us the kingdom of God here and now. The kingdom of God is the way of life that God's people are called to pursue. 
The kingdom of God is a way of life where love prevails, where justice and mercy are the hallmarks. Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate, exclude, revile and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. It strikes me that poverty, hunger, weeping and persecution are all expressions of being lost in some way. Luke certainly intends them to represent people who are marginalised somehow. And I'm going to pursue this theme of lostness because I think it's really important Stuart spoke about being lost last week when he was unpacking the story of Zacchaeus. And he encouraged us to rethink the way that Jesus connects with those who see themselves as lost. Being lost is what we might call a wilderness experience. Not a wilderness experience in the sense of flying to the Red Center and spending a few weeks camping under the stars, but in that sense of being disorientated, being lost. Poverty, hunger, weeping and persecution are all expressions of wilderness experiences. As such, they can all become pathways to strength and resourcefulness as we become filled and comforted through the love and care of God's provision. In the message paraphrase of Luke's gospel, we read verses 20 and 21 like this. You're blessed when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is there for the finding. You're blessed when you're ravenously hungry. Then you're ready for the messianic feast. You're blessed when the tears flow freely. Joy comes with the morning. But woe to those who are rich, full, laughing, or well spoken of. When we're lost, we are eventually ready to find and to be found. We only remain lost when we hope to find the kingdom of God in the places where it isn't. Remember the lost sheep, the one who wandered off away from the flock and the care of the shepherd in the parable that Jesus told. The way that Andrew McDonough tells the story in the lost sheep version for children suggests that Cecil wandered off looking for the good life. He was bored with having plenty to eat and drink and the company of the other 99 sheep. 
He wandered off and the shepherd discovered that he wasn't with the flock. And that's because Cecil was perched halfway up a mountain and he couldn't go higher and he couldn't climb back down. In Cecil the Lost Sheep, it says Cecil was stuck. Cecil was lost, but Cecil was stuck. The magic of retelling this story through the eyes of the lost sheep, Cecil, is that perhaps we can better see ourselves in the story. As Cecil's sitting on the ledge and he can't go higher and he can't climb back down and he finds himself stuck, he begins to imagine how it is that it will be if and when the shepherd finds him. He imagines being sent to bed without any dinner. He imagines being dragged by the hoof, bumpity, bumpity, bump, back over the rough terrain, back to where the flock is safely housed. But what really happens is that Cecil is delighted to find that rather than being punished for wandering off, the shepherd finds him, carries him home, and there is a great celebration. All the sheep get to stay up way past their bedtime as they have a big welcome home party for Cecil. So it seems that it's not our poverty or our hunger or our weeping or our persecution that keep us from experiencing the kingdom of God. Rather, it's becoming obsessed with being rich and full. It's about forgetting how to be grateful and to give thanks for the good things that we have. When the good life becomes a lure, Our pursuit of the good life inevitably doesn't take us where we hope it will. Jesus is telling his disciples that the good life does not equal heaven. The good life to which so many people devote their time and energy in pursuit can be gone in an instant. Heaven, however, is the present and future reality of God's provision in the midst of the reality of life and nothing can take it away. Nothing can take it away, even though life inevitably holds the possibility of pain and of suffering and of loss. Wilderness is an expression or image used over and over in the biblical narrative to describe a time and or a place where God's people are lost or disoriented. The grand story of the Exodus is the archetypal story of being lost. Forty years of wandering and arguing and of discontent despite God's provision. I don't think it's a stretch to say that we are a people who find ourselves in some kind of wilderness. This season in time, this place in history is a time and place of confusion, of disorientation 
and for many a time of lostness. There are many days when it really doesn't feel much like heaven. We ask lots of questions of God. Why God? Why? Why so much personal and communal pain and suffering? It occurred to me recently that in all the pages of Scripture, God doesn't adequately answer that perennial question. The book of Job is 37 grief-filled chapters of questions to God asking why. And when God speaks, God doesn't give a single answer to any of Job's questions about what has happened to him and why. Is that resonating with anybody? Rather, God offers Job a long list of questions in reply, establishing that while God is God and at the centre of all things, Job is not unimportant to God, despite his loss and his suffering. In fact, God cares for Job. Job gains wisdom And in this timeless human story, we can imagine Job becoming a source of wisdom about managing pain for others, unlike Job's unhelpful friends during his time of suffering who knew it all but didn't know anything. And this is because Job has now suffered and endured. When we're going through a time of persecution or tears or hunger or deep need, To find somebody who has experienced something of that journey can be a real comfort, can't it? Unlike Job, though, who doesn't lose his faith, do we sometimes abandon faith in God for the short-term gratification of the idols of wealth and success and the excesses of all kinds that come with the pursuit of the good life? Is it possible that sometimes we are the rich who have received their consolation? We are the overly full who have forgotten what hunger feels like. Are we the entertainment satiated whose pursuit of the good life has deprived us of the capacity to cry real tears about what is really painful and of feeling our pain in ways that bring clarity to it? to its source, so we can address the emptiness and the loss that we feel. In her book, An Altar in the World, Barbara Brown Taylor has a compelling chapter called The Practice of Being Lost. In her book, she writes each chapter around a different spiritual discipline. The Practice of Being Lost is a brilliant chapter about the art of living as a child of God through wilderness experiences. She says, I have found things while I was lost that I might never have discovered had I stayed on the known path. The Bible is a great help to me in this practice since it reminds me that God does some of God's best work with people who are truly, seriously lost, like Cecil. As it turns out, the Israelites needed 40 years in the wilderness to learn the holy art of being lost. 
I read this chapter just before I heard Stuart's sermon from last Sunday, where he spoke about rethinking what it may have meant to be lost. Walter Brueggemann is a highly regarded Old Testament scholar and popular preacher. He has this to say. Modernity has eliminated the mystery of God's presence in real and effective ways. And it's been replaced with emptiness on our own terms. This is the wilderness that modern people are navigating. They are filling the void with greed and materialism, which is not unlike the idolatry of the Israelites, which reduces everything, including spiritual practices, the natural world, and even ourselves, to that of a commodity. I wonder what this might have to say to the 7,000 people living in our local government area who have identified themselves as Anglican in the last census. If you haven't read Stuart's blog from Friday afternoon, read it. It's fantastic. It highlights not only the, the wonderful work that um, Christian churches are doing, the unseen and often unrecognized work that the churches are doing to address the needs of people on the Gold Coast, but it identifies that locally 7,000 people who have the choice of saying they are no religion, they are another religion, they are another denomination, 7,000 people have chosen to identify as Anglican in our local government area. Who are these people? Some of you are here today. Many of you may be online, and that's wonderful. I think there are a lot, though, who aren't represented by those who will worship in church or be connected with a church community this week. Perhaps these are people who care enough to maintain a connection with their heritage or perhaps have a connection with an Anglican school but perhaps they feel disenfranchised from church for some reason. So perhaps that suggests to us that reaching out with the things that are the very stuff of the kingdom of God, the things that satisfy hunger and help turn tears of repentance and anguish into joy is really worth doing. Conversations that we have day to day and week to week, seeking out people and offering them the good stuff that is not the good life, but the good stuff of the kingdom of heaven could have untold um, benefits for the people that we engage with. Jesus says, But I say to you who are listening, love your enemies now. Do good to those who hate you. Now. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. Now. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now. So while heaven might feel a long way off, perhaps it's closer than we think. The Celtic Christians had a wonderful sense of heaven being closer than we think. And I think to close, I have a short story about a conversation I was part of recently. 
It was actually a conversation between two politicians who I'm going to call Kate and Anne. They hadn't seen each other for some time and Anne was telling Kate that her dear brother, who's, who I'll call Jim, had passed away a few months ago earlier in the year. Kate was really sad to hear that because although these women are um, perhaps in public life in, in slightly different political spaces, Kate had the highest regard for Jim. She would encounter him at polling booths, at community events where he would be serving in his own way. And the thing that Kate said she always remembered about Jim was that she, he always called her by name. He always spoke well of her. He always took an interest in her. Other people might want to engage with a politician with their own agenda. Jim simply wanted to acknowledge who Kate is as a person. And Anne said, well, Jim always spoke so well of you and warmly and held you in very high regard. Jim was someone who wasn't able to work in the workforce and so his volunteering was his way of participating in the kingdom of God. His smile and his warmth and his simple gift of engaging with others and valuing who they are was spoken of at his funeral. It was obviously a gift that a lot more people than Kate appreciated about Jim. And so perhaps today on All Saints, you are remembering the people who are no longer with you and their beautiful way of being in the world with you and with others. And so we might just experience a bit of heaven on earth as we become vulnerable and have the courage to leave our well-worn paths then we will be better placed to encounter those for whom Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God, better placed to help the poor find the kingdom, the hungry to be filled, and those who weep to find laughter. Amen.